0: Continuing with our lesson series, Purpose of the Church, we're going to talk about what the church is supposed to do and what God has called us and commissioned us to. Give honor to Pastor Carson López, thank you so much for allowing me to stand behind this pulpit. We pick up in the book of Acts in Acts 1, and all of us know this powerful passage of Scripture, and we will not begin reading, but our goal is to end up in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And complete the process of what God truly asks us as a church to accomplish. We see in Acts one something begins to happen and we'll recap a little bit of, of last week. We know that the disciples were asked to tarry in Jerusalem in the upper room. How many likes to wait in line? God told them to wait because something's going to take place that's going to empower you. It was the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. That was signified by what? What demonstration? Cloven tongues, like as of fire, begin to fall upon each and every one of them. Then what takes place after that? They begin to speak in an unknown language at God give the utterance. Praise God for that. The cloven tongues was very significant because it demonstrated this powerful imagery from the Old Testament that led us all the way into the New Testament. Because everywhere God showed up, what happened? Children of Israel came out of bondage in Egypt. What led them by day? What shined above them at night? What happened when they would walk? In, the priests would walk into the holiest of holies to offer a sacrifice. What fell from heaven? Fire, fire, fire! It consumed the sacrifice. So there was no question in the Book of Acts as they were gathering. Though it would be strange to probably our culture or even our modern understanding of why God chose fire, cloven tongues to look like it was landing upon each and every one of them. It was the demonstration of the outpouring of God's spirit that didn't belong behind a veil. It wasn't locked off just for the high priest, but now it was open to every believer. So your relationship with God was not based upon a man. It was based upon your connection with God himself. Somebody say amen. Amen. And so God was telling us, I'm going to do something different. It's a new kind of doing. And in the book of Acts, we see something very new. The Bible says in Acts 10 and 38, Peter's very pungent summary of of this idea, this life of doing something new and good was here. He said he went about doing good. Jesus did good everywhere he went. When he began his ministry, he he healed those that were sick. He helped those that were helpless. He encouraged those that were discouraged. He, he allowed people to see his humanity. He was fully God but fully man. And so he did good. And, and the Bible tells us that other good people had lived but none like Jesus. As a matter of fact, if we look all the way back in the Old Testament, we see the first Adam, this God-made man. This Adam was made in the image and the likeness of God. He was intelligent, he was upright, he was good. He was the crown of creation, the Lord of the earth, the one whom God delighted to commune in the cool of the day. But Adam's goodness was a goodness that was based upon innocence. It was goodness that was untried, was it not? How long did it last? Well, we see it did not last very long. We don't know the amount of time that passed between his creation and his fall, but fall he did. And so we see this first Adam was a flawed Adam. But God said, I'm going to replace the first Adam because I'm going to robe myself in flesh and come as the second Adam. Oh, and this Adam was not like any that we had ever seen. Jesus Christ was that second man. He was the second Adam. He came. It was the beginning of something very new, a new kind of living, a new kind of thinking. He stepped out of heaven being robed in flesh. God robed himself in this despicable flesh that we, we wrestle with day in and day out, and he said, I will become the example for all mankind. His purpose in Hebrews 10 and seven says, it was to do thy will, and he did. Whether it was as a baby in the cradle, a boy around the Nazareth home, or in the synagogue school as a young man, as a teen, working at his father's carpenter bench, walking the highways of his native land as the servant Jehovah. It was a new kind of doing. It was a new kind of doing. We see him before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before Herod, on the cross, in the tomb, ascended on high. We see a new kind of doing. We see a new kind of doing, whether it be cleansing the leopard and healing the sick, freeing the demon, possessed, giving sight to the blind or enabling the lame to leap and raising the dead and feeding The hungry, stealing the storm, it was a new kind of doing. It was also a new beginning of teaching because not only was he given instruction that was written in holy word, but he was actually living the instruction in front of mankind. He was saying this that I can go through the same temptation. You can go through this same temptation. You don't have to fall and fail, you don't have to be beaten down by the enemy. He was a living example of what we can become. He was tempted in all manners like as we are. Ladies and gentlemen, that gives us hope as just common flesh that after we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and are endued with power, that we have the ability to rise above the tactics of the enemy. We are not overwhelmed by what the enemy brings against us, but God has given us anointing and authority and power through his word. Somebody say amen. It was a new beginning, a new kind of teaching. John seven forty six, he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. John 13, 54, he himself affirmed a greater than Solomon is here. In John 12, 42, it was a new kind of teaching, whereas the world is to be found nothing to compare with even something as, as, as an example of the Sermon on the Mount, because whoever told stories like Jesus, really? Nobody told stories. Think of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the unmerciful servant, the unjust sewer, the sower, the seed. You see, who had such a grasp of the future? No one like Jesus. His teaching was marvelous. It was saturated with scripture. It was pungent with understanding. It was practical, it was loving, it was true, it was convincing. It was delivered with compassion and courage and with a total grasp of all space, time, and eternity. What am I building? I'm trying to tell you what Jesus accomplished while he was on this earth. You see, there was no one like him. There was no one beside him. There was no one above him. You see, he was God. There wasn't anyone that could walk on this earth like Jesus Christ. He is the example. He created a way for us to follow. He became what we need to pattern our life after. Oh, pick a hero, pick a mentor. That's wonderful, but you better pick Jesus because there's nobody that can do what Jesus has done. I'm trying to hurry I, uh, This is the beginning. It's, it's setting us up for chapter four because He had to set an example. You see, what he was doing was he was choosing not just himself to be the example to minister, to preach, and to help, but he said, I'm going to choose 12 common average men, and these mistakes of society are going to be the example that the church needs to rise above. That should give you hope alone, because if we look at just the disciples themselves, they were flawed human beings that had mistakes that they made, and, and they failed miserably, even though they had personal one-on-one connection and mentorship with Jesus himself, they still did not always make the right decisions. So don't beat yourself up. Don't let the enemy mess with your mind to tell you that, oh, it's, you're, you've disqualified yourself. You hear me in the balcony, especially in the balcony, because if you let your past mistakes keep you in your past and you will never achieve what God has called you to become because God does not make mistakes ladies and gentlemen the enemy tells you you are. But that's not what God created because he formed you in his image. He breathed the breath of life into you. And every living human being has the ability to rise out of the conundrum of sin. You want to know what the mistake was? Is the fallen man. That was the mistake. But Jesus, as the second Adam came and said, I've abolished it. I've taken care of it. Sins will not be rolled forward. They can be eradicated. It's through repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. God said, I've made a way that's a better way. Amen. Hallelujah. That's what God does. It's a message of hope. When we look at the book of Acts, it's it's not just what happened thousands of years ago. It's what God can do now, here, in you. In you. You know, the beauty of it is this, and, and, and I, I think maybe the 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 problem the conundrum is this is is we look at others around us in church and there's nothing wrong with that unless you're comparing yourself among yourself because uh, the people in church are, are are great look look at these wonderful people there's 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 good people there's Some of them are dressed well. They've got nice ties and suits and their hair's done perfect and the dresses and all that stuff. And You know know what happens is we come to church and we just think everybody is living better than I'm living and everybody has just really got it. I'm the only one that doesn't have it. But you know what? That's a lie of the enemy because every one of us crawled our carcass into this church and we found an altar of repentance and though we didn't deserve it and self-condemnation and guilt was so heavy upon us we understood that there is grace and mercy that God has given oh aren't you thankful for the chance that God gave you you see, that's what the book of Acts is all about. Yes, it has to do with power and the forward movement of the church and the purpose of the church, but it's about redemption, redemption. Here it is. God has set the example himself and then the disciples to know that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that means I don't think the way I used to think. You, you want to know what Pentecost culture is? That may should have been a Question. What is Pentecost culture? Because it's, it's something so unique in this world. No other place, no other people fit in this culture. And you know what it simply is? Those that have been redeemed by the grace and mercy of God. It's a melting pot of every, every culture, world culture. It's a melting pot of every demographic society. But when we come to church, there's something that brings us together. You want to know why we have this tradition that we hold on to where we walk in and we say, Hey, brother, how you doing? Hey, sister, how are you? And people are like, what, what does that mean? I don't even understand. Are you related to them? No, no, no. You know what it's doing? It's reminding us that we are now family Oh, I didn't used to be. You you wouldn't have recognized me before I came to Christ. But you know what? I found a place where it doesn't matter what I've done or where I came from. I'm coming into the family and I've been embraced. And, And God has brought me to a people that understand the path that I've walked. Because in this church are people that their life has paralleled your life. You are not alone when you come into church. And you're not an oddity. You're saved by the grace and mercy of God. Hallelujah! I'm not supposed to preach I'm sorry I'll settle down it's supposed to be boring teaching it's the way it works you see there was a beginning it was here happening in the book of Acts and this thing that Jesus began both to do and teach but it was not an ending you see the living the doing the teaching is still going on it's what the books of Acts is all about As a matter of fact, there's no really end of the book of Acts, by the way. It's continuing. It's continuing today. Here and in Annapolis at Calvary Tabernacle, God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. You see, this is not the end when we get to the end of the book of Acts, but the church is still alive. Somebody say, thank God. Revival is still happening. The outpouring of the Holy Ghost is still taking place. Miracles and signs and wonders. And guess what? We're still preaching Jesus and him crucified. So book of Acts has not ended. God has continued it until the rapture takes place. It's a new way. You see, as a matter of fact, when he left for heaven, it it, it didn't end. But what he said, he said, I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to give commandments unto you. You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John highlighted those commandments. We have them on the Sermon on the Mount in the Upper Room Discourse. and many parables and precepts of the Bible, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, recalls the commandments of his gospel. So let's summarize this account. Let's look at what Luke is trying to say. He's, He's saying in Luke 24 and 44 and 46, he's saying, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be filled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. There's three great divisions right here of the Hebrew Bible. The law of Moses, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And what he was doing, he was opening up their understanding that they might understand scripture and see it. You see, they were to handle the Bible with the same sort of authority and passion and sincerity that Christ was handling scripture. I find it absolutely amazing that Jesus himself, though he gave many enlightened understanding references, he always quoted scripture. The enemy would come against him. He quotes scripture. Attacks would happen. Heaviness would weigh down. He quotes scripture. What is he establishing? The authority of scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. There's nothing greater than this word right here. It is absolute truth. In a a world and age that we live in, we must understand that this Bible, God has preserved this text according to his perfect will. If we doubt scripture, then we doubt God. If we doubt his word, then there's no power in his word. But we know that all the world is under subjection to the word of God. Come on, when the enemy comes against you, you can speak the name of Jesus. Why? There's power in that name, it's established in his word. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Verse 46 of Luke 24. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus beloved Christ to suffer, to raise from the dead the third day. So he confidently taught them. They begin to see and understand that. What he was saying was true. He chose the disciples, I've already mentioned, these messed up individuals to some account, common men, fishermen, cheaters, liars, doubters, people from all different mix of society. What was Christ trying to do? He was trying to show that he can pull from the top and from the bottom and certainly the middle. And God can use, God can use. So now we find ourselves understanding the authority and the purpose and the process which Jesus did and what he was trying to accomplish in the book of Acts. And now let us turn to Acts chapter four. We walk in Acts chapter four, we see that just this comes on the tail end of what Peter and John had done. They, they were minding their own business. They were going to the synagogue to uh, to pray, to, to connect with their roots. And as they're walking there, what happens? A, a, a lame man is there on the ground and he asks of them just money to give. And, and I don't know if they kind of were setting him up, but uh, they said, oh, look on us. And they expected to get some cash, you know, and, and they had no money. They was broke as a joke. They, they were the disciples. They didn't even know, the, they didn't have a house to live in. And they didn't even own the cloaks that they had on their body. They just had sandals and, and they went from town to town preaching the gospel and that's their life that they lived. Look on us, okay? Where's the money? Where's the cash? I need to go to McDonald's today. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. And uh, so they were going in to worship and to pray and, and uh, what did they do? Well, they said, well, such as I have, I'm gonna give to you. In the name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth what, rise up and walk. And what happens? God performs a miracle. This lame man gets up and starts leaping and worshiping and magnifying God. Well, this starts to get the attention of people around. Now, this is after the day of Pentecost and God had poured out his spirit. And and, and now Peter and John is kind of interesting because it used to be Peter, James, and John, but now it's just these two completely different disciples that we find in fellowship together and how different it was. Peter and John, Calvary had brought these men closer in fellowship, no doubt. Their nature, their temperament were different. The Apostle Peter was a doer, John was a dreamer. The Apostle Peter was a motivator, John was kind of a mystic. Apostle Peter had his feet on the rock and John had his head in the clouds. Do you see the difference here? Peter would point to John and demand of the Lord, what shall this man do in John 21, 21? And John would quietly whisper to Peter in a moment of doubt, is it the Lord? John 12 and seven. John would outrun Peter to the tomb, but Peter would push past him and rush right in. Peter would dash on out again because his mind was a world he couldn't process, where'd the body go, what happened? And John would walk away thinking deeply over the significance of those strangely ordered grave clothes. So Peter and John were the opposites. Look around you in this room right here, there's some opposites in here. I mean, I don't want to get real obvious, but there are some, (laughs) like there's high energy, low energy, there's extrovert, there's introvert. How many introverts in here? Praise God. Some of them didn't even raise their hand. Yeah, that's right. How many extroverts in here? (laughs) Praise God. Hallelujah. We just went to NAYC, NAYC, anybody go there? It was amazing, 30, how many, 2,000 young people and old people alike, and uh, it was incredible. My wife walked away from NAYC energized because she's an extrovert. It was, she, she could not wait to get into the building to meet as many people as she could. She wanted to go out to eat with everyone that she had just met. She wanted to reconnect with everyone in her entire life that she had ever looked at or seen or waved at and she was feeding off of it. I broke out in hives twice, (laughs) just thinking about walking into an arena with 32,000 people. It's like I felt like I was a a prize fighter trying to psych myself up because the guy in the other corner outweighed me by 30 pounds and had five years experience and this was my first fight and and i am i'm like oh jesus and so you get the game face on right because this is what you do this is who you are you know let me just say this god doesn't always call extroverts to preach the gospel <laughs> point in case right here you know what god does he messes with your mind i told the students that were incoming uh, yesterday at orientation that When I walked into IBC, I was shy, I was quiet. I lived in a town of 1,500 people. We didn't even have stoplights. Uh, I had never been outside of the country before. I'd never uh, flown anywhere before. I was a country boy. I drove a four-wheel drive truck. I wore a flannel shirt. I had a shaved head. I wore ball caps. I walked into IBC. My first service at Calvary Tabernacle, I came in those doors right there. I had sprung my ankle, I was on crutches. I was a little intimidated to walk down the slope. I walked in and I just stood in amazement. I thought, my whole town can fit in this sanctuary. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. I thought, this is amazing. And, um, and I, I, I reasoned with God you can't call me because I'm, I, I, I can't do. Dallas Collins was my sweet mate and, and um, And I was wrestling with it, and you can't call me. uh, I I can't be a preacher. I've never talked in front of people. I I don't stand in front of people. I was the invisible person in school. Anybody? It's like everyone else is raising their hand. Call on me, call on me. And I'm like, please don't call on me. Please do not mention my name. Don't even look over here. Don't, please don't do that. I'm saying, God, you can't, you can't. And God says, oh no, you don't know me. I can, I can. So when I was a kid, I would go to camps and, and God would begin to wrestle with me. And I came to IBC in my first chapel, I, I was so convicted, I, I had a call to God on my life and I found myself underneath the back pew after chapel and I'm saying, God, okay God, I'll do it. I'll give you my life. And God is saying, what what are you gonna give? I'll give you everything, God. What what, what does that mean? I'll give you everything and the hardest place to go, the most scary, intimidated place to go because it was the only place that I knew of in that little 18-year-old brain that wasn't fully developed. It was like, what's, what's the most remote place? Africa is the most remote place. And I said, God, I'll go to Africa. I didn't know any other countries, I just knew Africa because we had missionaries that would come through. And I'm like, I'll go to Africa, God, I'll do it. Thank God he never sent me overseas, but that was the moment that I surrendered my life. And let me tell you, when you surrender your life to God, you cannot plan your future. You can't predict what God is going to do because he takes you and begins to shape you. You can't, you can't use your personality as an excuse on why you can't do for God. You can't use your past because right here, God said, I'm going to use these two men that are completely unlike, but I'm going to allow the gospel to be forwarded and propagated through their ministry so how many would be willing to say god i'll let you use me yeah. well i'm not just i'm not preaching in the bible school students because here's what we get we think god uses youth but god doesn't just use youth god uses you god has got a call for you it doesn't matter if you're 88 years of age it doesn't matter if you're 32 years of age god is asking every one of us can you fulfill what i've called you to fulfill Because we think that it's qualifications based upon personality or intellect. We're gonna disprove that here in a minute. We think it's qualifications based upon how you were raised and what part of the country. It's not about that at all. It's about just saying, God, here I am. Let me tell you, your prayers are just as effective as any other person's prayers. Your prayers have the same effect as a missionary to Africa. Your prayers has the same effect as a saint that's been living for God all of their life. Because when you start connecting in prayer with God, guess what? God responds to his people. Ladies and gentlemen, you can lay hands on the sick and they can be healed. You can pray with someone in an altar and God can fill them with the Holy Ghost. You can ask God to do God, take this, do this, help here. And guess what? God will respond to your prayers. But don't put God in a box because he doesn't just answer according to what our need is or what our one is, but he answers according to what his will is. And his will is always better than our will. And so after they, they participate in the encouragement and then God heals this lame man, we find in four and one, and this is really where I'm beginning and I got, I've got nine minutes, 10 minutes left. of my, And this is my lesson today. And they spake into the people. And so what happened was after this man had been healed, it got the attention of everybody in the community. About 5,000 people, well, 5,000 men. Now, according to the way scripture is written, and the author, Luke, he usually just accounts for the men and not the women and children. So 5,000, maybe it was more. But here's what happened. He also got the attention of this element of Sanhedrin and Pharisees and Sadducees. About 72 people with the high priest and, and other authoritarians, and they were highly educated and they were very powerful. And they began to confront, and people wanted to know. As, as a matter of fact, they wanted to know how, how did this happen? Who gives you authority to do this? And as they spake into the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and they preached through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. You see, the miracle got the attention, but the miracle was not the end result. Well, let me let me just let me back up here. I don't wanna offend anybody, but your miracle is not what God has designed, and he's not, that's not his purpose for him to accomplish. The miracle sometimes gets the attention to wake you up to the fact that God has all power and authority. But the greatest miracle and his purpose is to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the miracle is the setup for the message. So God is trying to get someone's attention so that they can believe that God can do anything, even forgive me of my sins, even transform my life even bring me out of what I've been bound and addicted to. That's what God is wanting to do. So stop praying for just the miracle. If you want the miracle, you better be, you better be ready to preach the message, right? So don't walk on your job saying, God, we need a miracle here. We need a miracle. We need a miracle. You know what? God can't give you the miracle maybe because you're not willing to preach the message. Because if no one knows about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what good is the miracle? What good is if God heals someone's body but they walk down a devil's hell? What good is it if God performs and blesses your finances but it leads you darker and deeper into sin? What good is it at all if there's a miracle without the message? You know what God wants? He wants the church preaching the message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ it's everywhere we go it's how we live that's what the book of Acts is all about God is saying preach the gospel oh they won't like it when you preach Jesus they'll try to shut it down intellects will come against you you may have to stand before a court but take no thought what you should say because you open your mouth God said it in Acts 1 and 8 ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you because God is going to take the words that you didn't even know dwelt inside of you and it's through His Spirit that He empowers and enables you to preach the message, the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody lift your hands right now and thank God for what He's done and what He can do. Jesus' name. And so here they were, three and four. They laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day. And it was now evening tide. And howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. You know what? The enemy can't stop the word. The enemy can't stop the gospel from going forward. You can lock us up. You can put us in prison. You can, you can put restrictions on the church. You can deny them gathering together. Put masks and social distancing, you can pass ordinances and laws, but guess what, you can't stop the church. You can restrict them, you can persecute them, you can beat them, but you can't stop the church. Come on, the gates of hell shall not prevail. You know what, revival's ours. It belongs to every believer. It's not just an anomaly that should happen. It's not just a one-time shot and then it's over. No, God says he's going to make it happen because in these last days, what's going to take place? There's going to be an outpouring. There's going to be an outpouring. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got to be ready because if we're not ready, God will just move on. I want to be ready. You can't stop the word, and the enemy certainly cannot stop revival. Five and six, it came to pass on the morrow. Nine minutes, that the rulers, elders, scribes. Oh my word, look at this. It was a gathering of the Sanhedrin right here. Highly educated, powerful, 72 members. High priest being the president of the council, the Sadducees who dominated it, threw their weight on the side of the chief priest. Powerful minority was made up of the Pharisees, the party to which most of the scribes, these are the writers of the law. The most educated men, the most powerful men in all of Israel were there. How is this possible? Two fishermen intimidated. The most powerful, the most educated scholars the world has ever known. And two unlearned fishermen had so much power and authority. Fear was gripping their heart. What are we going to do with them? Ladies and gentlemen, you you need to understand who you represent and who you are. I believe in education. Get an education. Get your degree. But let me tell you, you don't need any of that to be powerful in the kingdom of God. Because when you stand before that council and you open your mouth to speak, there's wisdom and anointing and power and authority that comes out of you. God has blessed you with that. So you know what? You can stand in front of the council and they can ask you questions. You can certainly stand in your job and answer the scripture. And it's not because you have studied, maybe, or even researched, though I hope that you have. But God gives you the word. Yeah, right. So how many can be really honest and transparent? How many, how many extroverts that you've experienced that where, where you said, yeah, I, I had a question that was asked of me and I opened my mouth and I impressed myself. Yeah. <laughs> how many ever been there? You, you start talking about the word of God and what God can do and, and you're like, I, did, I didn't know that I know that. <laughs> and you're like, Man, that was some good, that was good, that was good. You're just like talking and there it is and you're just laying it out and they're going, oh my word, I've never heard this before and you're like, yeah. yeah. You better repent because that wasn't you at all. It's not us, it's God. You know what, it's his spirit and his anointing. Oh, you know what, why are we so intimidated? Why are we, we should never be intimidated because that's a promise that God has given us and God will use us. That's what's what, what saying, God, use me, use me. Stop praying that prayer if you don't want to be used. I prayed that prayer, I, I took it back for a second. <laughs> I got up one morning and I, I, I told my wife, I said, I just want God to help us to connect with people that are hurting and broken in our community. And I said, God, and I prayed. We prayed, God, help us to find hurting the people. I, my wife, I literally left. I was headed up to the office, to the church, and I had to stop by the grocery store to pick up something. And I walked in, and I'm just going through my business. You know, it's early morning. I don't, I don't like to talk to people much. I will, but it's just like, you know, I'd rather just go through the self-checkout and do my thing and leave and just have no interaction. And... Um, they weren't open and so I had, there's this lady and there's people in front of me and I just get my items and I don't even know what came out of my mouth. It was that prayer that was making me feel convicted and, and I just said, how you doing today? And she looked at me, she said, I'm not doing so well. And she started opening it up and telling me her husband was sick at home with cancer and they didn't give him long to live and the bills were piling up and man, she was stressed out. And for a few seconds I thought, oh man, what did I do? <sighs> it's just human nature, right? And man, something got a hold of me. And it was just like, God, in the moment, you know what, God does that and has done that through every person in this room that's ever said, Lord, just open it up, open it up. I promise, what if today we started praying, God, use me, send me to hurting people, send me to someone that needs the gospel, send me to someone that will be receptive, and then give me the words and give me the prompting to step out of that little comfort zone, this little box that I placed myself in, and let me be used by your spirit. I promise you, you don't have to stand on a street corner and say, hear ye, hear ye, this is the word of the Lord. You can can just sit in your living room and get a phone call, or, or you can be walking out of your, your driveway and there's your neighbor walking past and all you have to do is just let the Spirit of God lead you. You know, the disciples were at this place where, where they didn't know what to answer. They, they didn't know what was going to happen and they, they began to berate them and come against them. And you know what? God just began to give them the words to say, well, look at it right here, right here. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And there it was, right out of the gate, that they set the apostle Peter up for a home run. What power and what name? And you know what? He just said, oh, this is easy. I can start preaching. It's in the name of Jesus. And by the power that has been in that name that's given to me, because I'm a believer. And you know what? That name, it wasn't me that did this. It wasn't my prayer. It wasn't my ability. But it's Jesus. Don't you know that it's not you that fails when someone doesn't receive what they need to get from God? All you are is a representation of the power and the authority. You can't take credit for it and you can't be ashamed of it and you can't say well it didn't happen God knows you just have to be the recipient of anointing and the instrument to be used by God yes, I got four minutes well three minutes this is this is the conundrum this is every I didn't get to it so the whole setup is not the miracle, it's the message. It's not the qualifications of the person, it's what God can qualify through the person. They're not any different than us. Because this whole dialogue that's taking place between the most intellectual minds and this verified, unlearned fisherman that begin to speak with boldness. Now the apostle Peter did not hold any punches Look what he says. Then Peter, now here it is, 8 and 10, ready? Filled with the Holy Ghost. Said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day be examined of the good deed to the impotent man by means he is made whole, be it known unto you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, Whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole? That's unbelievable boldness. You see, what he was saying is, you crucified the answer, the deliverer, the savior. There's in you know what when Jesus came back from the dead, he showed himself the disciples for 40 days by many infallible proofs that he indeed. The non-believers believed that Jesus rose from the dead and embraced it long before the believers did. 40 days it took him going to the 12 men that he had told, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. And they rejected and they didn't believe and they doubted. I've got to put hands, my finger in his nail print, I've got to thrust it in his side. And, and they didn't even think that God could do what he said. But the non-believers said we've got to shut this down. This guy's back. we got to, we got to squelch this rumor. we got to cut this off. Don't let the non-believers believe that God can use them, bless them, save them, help them more than the believers. If anybody should be a testament of what God God has done it should be us that have been recipients of his grace and mercy we should be the loudest advocates we shouldn't let the new convert we shouldn't let the unsaved we shouldn't let them out preach us but God forbid we need to stand up as the church because that's what the book of Acts is all about allowing the church to testify of what God has done I got one minute one minute, I wanted to talk to you about, he goes on, the stone, which was not a view of the builders. He's quoting prophecy, he's, it was prophetic. It was Psalms 118 and 22, and Mark 12 and 10, and Daniel 2 and 35, where, where, where prophecy was saying he's the stone, he's the cornerstone, he's, he's the builder stone. And he's saying, but at the stone, you, you rejected and turned away. You know what the apostle Peter's doing? He's not allowing them to be comfortable with the message, but he's taking that dagger and putting it into the heart of the matter, and he's beginning to twist that dagger. You know what he's doing? He's telling them, I'm not gonna stop telling you what you need to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't soft approach this sometimes. We have to be kind, we have to be loving, but there's people that we cannot be intimidated. They need to know it's Jesus. You need to let conviction flow. You need to let them understand, yes, you are a sinner. And yes, hell is your destiny. But guess what? God has given you this miraculous grace and mercy that you can turn and walk away. It's the cornerstone. It's God himself. I'm done. I'm not done. 412. Last verse. Stand, please. This helps me. Because he goes on, and here here it is. I was supposed to get to verse 20. Neither is there salvation, salvation in the other, for as there there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. (laughs) Not the name of Confucius, not the name of Buddha, not the name of Allah not the name of any saint of God's choice of saints, not the name of Abraham, not the name of Moses. It's the only name, the name of Jesus. That's where salvation is found. We should never be intimidated to preach Jesus. We should never be intimidated to talk about the goodness of Jesus. We should never be intimidated to let people know we are the people of the name of Jesus. Somebody lift your hands and call upon that name. We love you, Jesus. We magnify you. We lift you up, O Lord. We exalt you, mighty God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.